morning, everyone. We will be in Genesis 41 this morning. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or tap there on your phones. We won't be doing all of it. It's a very long chapter, so I'll be summarizing part of it, and we'll be spending most of our time near the end. Uh, But just to bring a few people up to speed, maybe you haven't been here for the whole thing, we're going through the story of Joseph, the account of Joseph, and um, understanding that uh, God is teaching us, Joseph is an example to us out of the Old Testament that we can use an example. We get to learn how God is at work in Joseph's life on sort of the horizontal level that Joseph's life is going along, and I'll get into that later, but then also that God is acting at, a, at another level, God's telling his story. So there's Joseph's story and what what's God's accomplishing in Joseph's life for Joseph's purposes, and, and we can learn from that how God's active in our life. But then we also remember that God is also telling his story, that there's a redemption story that's going on, a covenant-related story going on that God is also telling. And so we're talking um, even more so today about both of those levels, about both of those stories that are happening in parallel and how those are happening in our lives as well. And uh, if you have the insert on, on Joseph for week five, those are all notes for homework, okay? Those are not notes from this sermon. You go beyond this sermon in your homework and in your small groups. And so if you want to take notes, you have to take notes separately from that. Um, but just keep those notes for this week, and that'll help you in your own private Bible study time, and it'll help you as you go into your small groups uh, to be a part of that conversation as we explore uh, this God story more fully in our role in it. Uh, But let me just open up in a word of prayer before we look into Genesis 41. Father God, we thank you for your word and uh, this story of Joseph and uh, this account of Joseph, I should say. Uh, Story sounds like it's something that's made up and it's not made up. This is a historical account of Joseph and a historical account of your supernatural working in the lives of your people to accomplish covenant promises uh, that you laid down uh, to Joseph's great, great, great grandfather, Abraham. And uh, so, Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that we would understand that it is living and active, that it is relevant for us today, and that you mean it to transform our lives uh, for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 41. um, So Joseph has been in prison now. You remember last week he had uh, interpreted the dreams of the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and it was going well for the cupbearer and not so well for the baker. And Joseph knew that was going to happen, and so he said to the cupbearer, not the baker, when things go well for you in the palace, uh, can you remind Pharaoh about me because I'm prisoned unjustly. I shouldn't be here. And, uh, and then we saw that the cupbearer forgot Joseph, and so two more years. It says, opening in Genesis 41, chapter 1, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed. Okay, so just keep in mind, Joseph now is in prison another two years. He's probably been there two or three years already, and he's got another two years to wait. But Pharaoh now has a dream. And uh, so Pharaoh dreams. He has two dreams that many of you may remember from Sunday school, or maybe I hope that you remember them from reading through the scriptures in the last year or two. I hope Sunday school isn't the last time you read Genesis. Um, I mean, if you're making any attempt at reading through the Bible and you're starting in Genesis, you have to at least get to Leviticus before you give up and skip to the New Testament, right? So (laughs) I'm, I'm hoping that you've read Genesis more recently than Sunday school, but you might remember this from Sunday school. Pharaoh has these two dreams and he sees seven plump and attractive cows come up out of the water of the Nile 
and uh, they feed on the grass by the shore, and then seven skinny, gaunt, and ugly cows come up out of the water, and they eat the seven fat cows that were there. That's very disturbing. And he wakes up, and he thinks, that was weird, and then he falls back asleep again. And he dreams again in the same night, and this time it's one stalk of corn with seven fat, ripe ears of corn, you know, like peaches and cream or something that you would want to barbecue and eat uh, for dinner. And those fat ears of corn are there, and then skinny, scrawny, blighted ears of corn grow on the same stalk, and they also consume and eat the fat ears of corn. And so Pharaoh wakes up, and he calls all his magicians and all of his wise men and soothsayers to interpret this dream for them, and none of them come up with anything, which is interesting. Like, they don't even lie about it. They don't, they don't even say, oh, yeah, I know what that means. Uh, it means, you know, you're going to be really successful in life and uh, everything is going to come true for you, like those interpreters and soothsayers and tarot card readers and people that people we go to, right? They never look into the crystal ball and say your life is going to be horrible. They look into the crystal ball and always tell you that it's going to be great, right? So Pharaoh calls all his magicians and, and they, don't even, they don't even try and lie. They are so lost in understanding these dreams that they don't even risk faking it with Pharaoh. They say, we don't know what those things mean. Those are weird dreams. And so then, of course, the cupbearer remembers Joseph and, and so Joseph is cleaned up and he's brought to Pharaoh. And that's where we come to in Genesis uh, 41, 15 and 16. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it, I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, remember the same as he said last time to the cupbearer, it's not in me, I can't interpret dreams, but God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And so he interprets the dreams, and they both mean the same thing. Joseph says, you've had two dreams because God is serious about this. He's reinforced it by saying it twice. This is really going to happen, no doubt about it. There are going to be seven really good years of weather and crop, and then there's going to be seven years of drought and famine. That's what the seven cows are. That's what the seven ears of corn are. And that's what the next 14 years look like for you, Pharaoh. God is warning you that this is what is coming. And Joseph goes on even then to give Pharaoh advice. He not only interprets the dreams for Pharaoh, he then actually, you know, just for free, he throws in some advice. And he gives him a plan. He says what you should do, Pharaoh, is you should basically double the tax on crops to make it 20% for the next seven years and then take that 20% and store it away so that when the famine comes, you have grain to feed your people. Right? So that's where we are in the text. And so that's the first 36 verses of 47 or 41. Now we're going to read 37 to 57 and see now, not so much the dreams, but see how this situation affects Joseph and what we can learn from it. So in verse 37, it says, This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Isn't that interesting? Here's Pharaoh, a pagan king, a pagan emperor, who can see that the Spirit of God is in Joseph. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, and he put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put gold chain around his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. And thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. 
Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up a hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zephanath Paneah, and he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. And so Joseph went out over the land of Egypt, and Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 13 years after he was put in the pit by his brothers. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. And during the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food in cities, and he put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And before the year of famine came, two sons were born of Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said, and there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph and what he says to you, do. And so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. I love this part of the story, right? This is the part of the story that we were waiting to get to after the pit and the prison and all of that stuff. Now we're into the great part of the story of Joseph. And there is so much here that we could unpack from Genesis 41, but we're just going to look at sort of two or three main key texts here and unpack some ideas for how they apply to our life and give us a picture and understanding of what God is doing in his story, what God is doing in his covenant story. So it says, first of all, The one thing that we can notice is early on, Pharaoh says, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? And so even Pharaoh recognizes that Joseph has a special relationship with God and actually has the Spirit of God. And the question has come up a couple of times in this study. Uh, Some of you may be more alert than others. Uh, When I talk about Joseph having the Word of God or Joseph knowing the will of God, uh, I've got a couple emails saying, how did Joseph know this? Joseph is in Genesis. Genesis wasn't written yet. So he doesn't have scripture. Moses has not written the Pentateuch. Nothing has been written down yet in terms of the scripture. So how does Joseph have the word of God? How does he know the will of God? Well, here, Pharaoh, the writer of the story here, points it out to us through Pharaoh that that the spirit of God is with Joseph, right? He he sees that all the things that, that God has a will for him by God's spirit. God has given Joseph his spirit. He's a child of God by faith in God's promise made to his great-great-grandfather and his father. If you look in Hebrews 11.22, it mentions the faith of Joseph and that Joseph fully understood the covenant realities that God had laid out to his grandparents. Joseph even understood that 300 years before it happened that God would lead Israel out of Egyptian captivity just as he promised Abraham. Right? He says, God is surely going to lead you out of here, and when you go, take my bones with you because I don't want to stay buried in Egypt. I want to be buried in the lands of my father. Joseph knew what God was doing. Joseph knew about the covenant. He knew about the promise. He knew they'd be in captivity for 400 years. He knew that about 300 years after he died, they'd eventually be leaving. And so he says, when God leads you out of here, you take my bones with you. 
Joseph had the Spirit of God. Joseph knew the will of God. God was speaking to Joseph in ways that, that we don't even fully comprehend because God was at work in his people apart from his word before Moses began to write it down. And that's a reminder that as we read the story of Joseph, we're always reading the story on two levels, as I mentioned. In all of our life, life stories, for those of us who know God, there's always two stories running in parallel. There's our story, what is happening to us and what God is accomplishing in us, and then there's God's story that is superseding our story, that God is accomplishing something in his people and for the world that is a story that rises above our story. And what God is doing in us and sometimes in spite of us to accomplish his redemptive plans for the world. And that's meaningful for us here in Halliburton. Because we all have our stories. We all come to church on Sunday and we think, what are you doing in my life, Lord? I want to know your will. I want to do your will. I want to understand my relationship with you and how my story, your plan for me is unfolding in my life. And that's good. That story is being told and it is being told in your life. But what it means for us in Halliburton is that God has a plan for the world and that includes Halliburton. God has a redemptive plan that he is accomplishing through us. And we need to be aware of that story as well. We have to be aware that that is taking place. So let's start with Joseph's story. Let's just lift some phrases here that shows us what's transpiring for Joseph first on his level. It says, Pharaoh says to him, only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. I have set you over all the land of Egypt. He says, I have clothed you in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain around your neck. I've called out to bow the knee. All of Egypt will bow to you. You read those phrases, and for Joseph in his story, he can finally see his dreams from 13 years ago starting to come to pass, right? Joseph, or Pharaoh, has lifted Joseph up out of the prison and made him second in command of Egypt. He gets a new cloak. Do you notice that? He clothes him in fine robes. He's, Joseph has had his robes ripped off of him twice, and both of the times his cloak was ripped off of him, it ended badly. This time, Pharaoh puts him in new clothes. He gives him a new suit of authority. Right? He has a gold chain around his neck. What a difference from 13 years ago. Psalm 105 is so insightful into the story of Joseph. It, it's basically a retelling uh, of the story of Joseph in song. And in Psalm 105, it says in verse 17, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, his feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Okay, so, so Joseph comes into Egypt with a collar of iron, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm going to put gold chains around your neck. I think Joseph likes that better. No more iron collar, just gold chains. And then Pharaoh rides him through the city with the command to bow the knee. And for Joseph's line of the story, this is now really starting to look to Joseph like those dreams he had way back when with his brothers, right? His family's not bowing to him yet, but the whole nation of Israel is bowing the knee, sorry, the whole nation of Egypt is bowing the knee to Joseph. He must see that his life story at least is unfolding according to God's plan. Joseph can probably imagine that someday maybe his family will be bowing to him, but Right now he's got the nation of Egypt bowing to him. And then Pharaoh gives him a new name, Zephanath Paneah. And it's interesting that Joseph caught on as a boy's name more than Zephanath Paneah, right? I know some Josephs. I don't know any Zephanaths. It just didn't catch on as a name. I don't know. I don't know when our next boy baby is due. I don't know. Maybe that's Steve and Janice. I don't know. Maybe they'll have another boy. Oh, it's a girl? Oh. They dodged that bullet because I was going to put that challenge out there. 
Next baby boy, Zephaniah Paneah. Go with that. Right? But So he gets this new name, right? And, and, and we see that his life is beginning to match his dream. And then we see, as we're talking about names here, that it's no accident that we have the names of his children included in this account as well. The writer has included here Joseph's two children and the names that he gives them. It says, Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, and Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all, and all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim, for God had made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And so if in the story of Joseph, as we did last week, are we, if we're going to talk about his perseverance in the prison, then we also have to talk about his faithfulness in the palace. And that's the first lesson here that we see here on the Joseph level of the story. Right? The names that Joseph gives his sons and the faithfulness in which he served Pharaoh demonstrates that Joseph walked rightly and acted with integrity both when he was tested by suffering and feeling abandonment and, and, for, and being forgotten in prison. But perhaps even more amazingly, Joseph was faithful with his fortune. Right? And last, year we looked at, last week we looked at perseverance in the prison and here we're looking at faithfulness in the palace or faithfulness with his fortune because we need to consider for ourselves what our temptation is when we are in seasons of suffering do we tend to lean into god or lean away from god and that's what we talked about last week when when joseph was suffering he didn't curse god he didn't rebel against god he didn't lean away from god he leaned into god and there was a lesson there that even in the pit even in the prison we are still to walk rightly before god we are still to be outwardly focused we are still to care for others and show compassion we are still to walk in the right ways before god and to trust in god even in those times but then there's the other side of it what about when things are going really well and in some ways, for a lot of us, it's easier to trust God when things are going poorly, right? They say there's not very many atheists in foxholes, right? When times are tough, that, that quite often is when we lean into God. But there's the other side. What about when things are going well? What about when we have our health, when we have a good job, when the money's coming in, when we have a roof over our head, when all of our kids are going to university and you know just growing up to be great upstanding citizens when everything is going our way the temptation there can be just as dangerous to forget god to just say i don't need god right everything's going great i got my health i got youth i got money you know my future looks bright you know i can spend my sundays doing other things i don't have to spend time with god but that's not so with joseph you see joseph was persevering in the prison but he was also faithful in fortune. Joseph did not let the fact that he had had it made, he's got it made in Egypt, right? He doesn't let the fact that he is elevated to second in command in Egypt, that he has gold chains, that he has a beautiful wife, that he has, you know, some nice young kids and everything is going his way. Joseph does not use the ease of his life as an excuse to forget God. Jesus says it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said, it's easy for us, like the prodigal son, to think that if we have our inheritance, if we have our money and our friends and our travel, then we can just forget about the Father in heaven. 
We don't need God. And so we have to be aware of both temptations and especially aware of which one we are more tempted to. And, and I honestly think as believers and I think as, as believers here in North America, in our generation and in our culture, it is very easy for us to forget God in our wealth than it is for us to forget them in our suffering. In our suffering, we turn quickly to God. But in our wealth and in North America, make no mistake, we are wealthy. We are living in the palace right now. And the greater danger for most of us is not that we will curse God in our trials, although some people do that too, but rather the greater danger for us is that we will simply forget God when things are going our way. But Joseph neither cursed God in his suffering nor did he forget God in his fortune. And in the midst of his power and his influence as second in command in Egypt, Joseph does not forget who is ruling over his life. He does not forget from where his blessings flow from. And we see that in the names of his children. As he's naming his children, we see that Joseph recognizes the gift that God has given him of peace and stability. After 13 years of prison and slavery, he is finally in a position of influence and power and stability and success. And he knows that all of his success and all of his power and all of his influence and all of his comfort comes from God. And most importantly, Joseph doesn't forget Pharaoh's dream either, that what God has promised will come to pass and that Joseph has a job to do. He's not there by accident. He is in that position of wealth and influence and power to be able to accomplish God's story, God's covenant promise story, in the nation of Egypt and for his people. So that's Joseph's story. And there's a lot that we can learn there at that level of Joseph's story about our own temptation of when we forget God. But what's happening at the level of God's story? And there's a lot we can learn there too. So some key phrases again to show us what's going on at that level. So Joseph is now the most powerful man next to Pharaoh in Egypt. And for the next 14 years, it's Joseph's job to look after grain. That's it. That's Joseph's big job. Take care of the grain. The robes are nice. The palace is nice. The family is great. The bowing of everybody is cool. But Joseph's big job for 14 years is just looking after grain. And if that's all that came of Joseph's dreams in life, it would almost be anticlimactic. But this is not only the story of Joseph. It's the story of a covenant-keeping God and a, a story of a whole nation that God plans to rescue. It's the story of Joseph, the covenant fulfiller. It's the story of Joseph, the promised redeemer. And so it says, during the seven plentiful years of the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food for these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and he put the food into cities, and he put in every city the food from the fields around it, and Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And you think, so what does that have to do with God's story? Well, we remember that Joseph is a son of promise. He's a son in the covenant line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And let's consider what that covenant promise was. If we go back to Genesis 12, 2 and 3, we see what God promised Abraham. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says to Abraham, you are going to become a great nation and it's through your descendants that all the nations of the world will be blessed. And those that bless your family and your nation will in turn be blessed. And that's going to happen in more ways than one. God's covenant, and you'll see more of this in your homework, God's covenant promise unfolds in greater and greater revelation over time. 
And we know that the ultimate revelation of this Abrahamic covenant, this promise that God has made that, that the descendant of Abraham will bless all the nations is fulfilled in who? Who's the ultimate of that? Christ, right? Jesus is going to bless the whole world. That's the ultimate revelation of that covenant. But that covenant shows itself in different ways through history. And so here we have Joseph. Oh, and there's another part to that covenant. He reveals more in Genesis 15. It says, The Lord then said to Abraham, Know that for certain that your offspring will be sojourners or visitors or travelers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants or slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Okay, here's two promises. Your descendants are going to be a blessing to nations, and you're also going to spend 400 years in captivity. How's that going to happen? Well, now here we have Joseph, a descendant of Abraham and a child of promise, and he's been blessed by Pharaoh. Hasn't Pharaoh blessed Joseph? Yeah, he absolutely has. And nations that bless Abraham's people are blessed. And so Joseph is storing up grain during times of plenty in order to have enough food for the nations in times of famine. Because in Joseph, in the descendants of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And it says, The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come. And Joseph had said, There was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. And so when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened up all the storehouses. I just, I just want you to picture what's going on here. Joseph opens up all the storehouses where he has stored up all this grain for seven years and he makes all this grain available to the nations and he sold it to all the Egyptians for the famine was severe. And moreover, it says in verse 57, all the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. You see, can you just picture what the... What the, what the writer is, is laying out for us here in the account of Joseph. And in Joseph, we see a glimpse of the fulfillment of God's covenant promise coming true. Joseph is an early foreshadowing of the blessing that's going to come to the world through the line of Israel in the Messiah, Christ Jesus. And as Joseph opens up the storehouses of grain and is able to offer life to a starving world, we see the prefiguring of the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that will come in the Messiah, in Jesus Christ. The bread of life is going to come into the world through the line of Abraham. And that bread of life is going to be thrown open to the whole world, not just the Jews. God's not a tribal God. right? This is the mystery that Paul says is revealed now that was hidden from our ancestors, from our fathers. We didn't understand, but this mystery is now revealed that Christ has come for the Gentiles, that Christ has come for the whole world. And so the bread of life is going to be made available to all the nations. In John chapter 6, as Jesus is teaching the multitudes of the people, we can see this unfolding. Jesus is not hiding this. right? You remember in John chapter 6, he he does the feeding of over 5,000 people, you remember, and he performs the miracle of the loaves and the fishes to feed the crowds, and, and that's amazing, and they're all just you know blown away by his teaching and blown away by this miracle that this rabbi does. But But what happens the very next day, if you keep reading in John chapter 6, is that the crowds all jump in their boats and they follow Jesus across the Sea of Galilee. He's got another speaking engagement over at Capernaum. And so all these crowds, Jesus wakes up the next morning and crowds of people have come from the day before. They've actually traveled across the Sea of Galilee to him in Capernaum. And he says to them, in John 6.26, he says to the crowds that followed him, he said, you're not seeking me, you just want to eat a free meal again. You guys just want breakfast. 
You're not actually seeking me. And so he goes on and he says to these people that have come because they want to eat this free food that he's offering, he says to them in verse 32, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. He's talking about manna in this case. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Do you see the parallels, right? Do you see the foreshadowing in Joseph of what is to come in the Messiah? Jesus is not hiding this. He says, I'm the bread. I am life. You come and partake of me, and you will never get hungry or never thirst. He's the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant promise that a descendant of Abraham will be a blessing to the whole world. He says, I'll satisfy you. It's my body that's going to be given for you on the cross. That's the sacrifice that will redeem the world and will make a way for forgiveness of your sins. In every way, it's Jesus who was born in Bethlehem, literally the house of bread, that brings life. And so what about us then? Okay, so that, that's God's story, right? God's, God's telling this story that begins with his covenant promise to Abraham that he's going to redeem the world, he's going to save the world through descendants of Abraham, and he's going to fulfill this covenant promise very specifically that Joseph is going to be a blessing to the nations, that, 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 that Abraham's descendants are actually going to be sojourners in Egypt, and we're going to get to that in the next two weeks because his brothers end up coming to Egypt and they end up staying there for 400 years before they get taken out. Right? So Joseph is, in his story, is all the things are happening to Joseph according to his dreams and God's plan for Joseph, but Joseph understands that he's also under, understands that he's part of this covenant promise of God's story and that God is accomplishing greater purposes through Joseph than just what's happening on, in Joseph's level of the story. Okay, so then, then how does that apply to us? Are we believers? As, sorry, are we as believers, as members of God's church, children now of the promise? Because this is what God said about the children of promise, that they would be a blessing to the world, right? Well, of course we are. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians, Galatians 3.29, he says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to promise. That's pretty clear, right? Like, do you think Paul says that by accident? Like, just let that sink in. Everything I've been talking about Abraham, everything I've been talking about Joseph, everything I've been talking about Jesus, look what Paul says here. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs, in case you missed it, Paul spells it out, according to promise. We're part of this promise. Okay, we don't get off the hook here saying, well, you know, I'm not a descendant of Abraham. I'm, I'm not Joseph. I'm not, I'm not in the line of Jesus. You know, this doesn't apply to me. No, Paul is clear. You are Abraham's offspring. And if you didn't get it there, then he says it later on in Galatians in chapter 4.28. He says, now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. He compares this to Isaac. Wow. So if we are children of Abraham by faith in Christ, then who are we to be to the world? What is the church according to the covenant? What does the church have that the world needs? Where do we find ourselves in the story of Joseph here who is prefiguring the ultimate promise and blessing to come in Christ? Well, we know. We are the body of Christ while he's not present. 
We are the storehouse of the blessing that God has stored up for the nations. We have the bread of life. We have the knowledge of God and the word of God. We have stored up in the body of the church the food that a hungry world needs. So I just ask you this question. Does it feel to you like there is a spiritual famine in the world? Does it feel to you like the nations are starving because they don't have the bread that we have? Does it feel to you like we as the children of promise have the storehouse of the grace and the forgiveness and the mercy and the knowledge and the spirit and the bread of life that the world needs? Isn't the church the storehouse that God has provided to the world to come and eat so that you never hunger again? I think it is. I think the church is the storehouse. And so as you're reading the account of Joseph and it says that the starving nations came to Joseph. It didn't say they came to Egypt. They came to Joseph and Joseph threw open the storehouses so that the nations could eat. I want us to think about ourselves in that way. We are children of promise. We, the church, are the storehouse that has the bread that the world needs. Are we willing to share and to overcome the worldly famine? And the worldly famine is broken marriages and violence and abuse and despair and poverty and hopelessness and everything else that we can see in the darkness that is holding people in bondage. Joseph couldn't help the world until he was in the palace and he had stored up the grain, right? That's an important part to remember. Joseph was no good when he was in the pit. Joseph was not really helpful when he was in prison. Joseph couldn't actually help the world until God had put him in that place in his life where he could be used by God, where he was in the palace and he had done the work to store up the grain and he had remained faithful to the covenant promise that God had given him. And Joseph did not forget God, but he did his work during that seven years to store up the grain in order to prepare for the famine that was to come. And so I ask us, ourselves, as the church, do we recognize that our place in the story of Joseph and in history is that we are living in the palace right now in North America. The church of God in North America is not in a season of prison right now. Maybe heading in that direction, but right now we are not in the season of prison. We are not in the pit. The church of God in North America is in the palace. We have storehouses of the bread of life in every city. There's five of them just in Halliburton area and more when you count Minden there are storehouses of the life that the world is starving for and needs in every city in churches we have people who can share this bread of life God has put us in a position where we are in positions of influence in contact with people that can receive this knowledge and not only that we have people actually coming into our storehouses who are hungry all the time every week This is our opportunity to bless the nations. So if we're going to be a part of God's promise to redeem the world, and if we're going to be those children of promise who are a blessing to the nations, if we are going to be the body of Christ in the world, 
while he's not here, then we, the church, have to be sharing the bread of life that God has stored up in order to rescue a starving world. None of the things that have happened in history have happened by accident. God had a covenant promise to Abraham. God rose up Joseph very specifically to accomplish his covenant purposes, both in the family of Abraham and to be a blessing to the world. God revealed to Joseph his role in that covenant reality to be a blessing in that situation. And it's the same thing with us as the church. The church is not an accident. God knew from before the foundations of the world that he would have to have a people that he set aside for himself and prepared ahead of time for good works. And so the church was God's plan. It's God's plan A and there is no plan B. And so when Jesus left, he founded his church. And so his church was left with the Spirit of God. And all over the world are churches. And I want to say here to connect it to Joseph, there are storehouses of living bread. There are storehouses of grain. And the church and God's people in the church are not there by accident. God has put the church in the world to be salt and life. God has put the church in the world to be the storehouse of his word, of his spirit, of his blessing, of his wisdom, of his love, of his compassion, of his mercy. We are the storehouse. We have the grain. So what are we going to do as God's children of blessing and God's children of promise? Are we going to hoard it all to ourselves? Are we going to keep it inside the walls? Are we going to open up these doors and say, there's a starving world out there that need the spiritual bread that we have. Let's bring them the bread. Let's open our doors and welcome them in. That way we are children of promise. The same promise that Joseph is the child of. The same promise that Christ is the fulfillment of. The bread that we have is Christ Jesus. It's the gospel. Let's share it with the world. Let's pray. Father God, you are painting in the Old Testament with such a big brush. It's like you're painting a mural that's the size of a stadium. And we have to step back sometimes a long way and to get the big picture of this mural that you're painting. This just incredible broad brush strokes of bright, vibrant colors. And the picture that you are painting in the Old Testament accounts are pictures of you and your promise and your covenant and your faithfulness and how you are at work sovereignly in the lives of your people. And as we step back, we finally see that this is not, there is not a stroke out of place, that everything has been planned by you for one purpose, one promise that there is a starving world that needs to be redeemed. And you have given us that ministry of redemption. So, Father, help us to see in this mural, in this big, boldly painted picture where we fit, just as Joseph did, that we are your children of promise, that we have the bread of life, that there is a starving world that needs your spiritual food, and that we are the storehouse of grain that can provide it. Father God, that's a purpose that just is astounding and humbling. But Lord, you've given us our little storehouse in our little town. Help us to be faithful, to know our place in your story. That we can be the people of promise that bring the bread of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.